everybody. Welcome back to Crime and Coffee. My name's Allison. And I'm Mike. And we're back at you again this week. Just wanting to ask you a little favor. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you guys rating us on Apple Podcast. Five-star review, if you don't mind. And a couple words wouldn't hurt either. Like, hey, great job. Looking forward to whatever. You know? Yeah, we yeah. certainly would appreciate it. It would mean a lot to us and maybe help us out a bit. Yeah, it's a free way to support the show. Exactly. Ultimately, you know, this, uh, this would be a great full-time job. It would be. Um, although I'd imagine there's probably quite a bit of, like... Uh, mental things you go through as you're researching a lot of these murders and stuff like can you imagine like some of the bigger ones that are just constantly doing this all the time i don't know i think i could handle it compartmentalize is what you do right right you know we all know there's crazy business out in the world we just need to separate it from our day-to-day life right a lot of times on twitter and facebook oh which we are on twitter and and twitter not facebook but uh, twitter and instagram at crime and coffee two the number two but every time yeah, I do a lot of the social media and there's been some uh, arguments over whether you know, podcasts like this are good or bad or, you know, some people are mad and say, you know, you shouldn't uh, bring stories up again. You know, it doesn't allow the families to cope and everything and just kind of get rid of it. But at the same time, it's public knowledge. And I always say part of being a human is telling stories. And, right. You know, maybe you know some are fictionalized and some are you know nonfiction. Obviously, everything we say is nonfiction actually happened. But, you know, the, the whole human race is based on stories and just continue, you know, people want to hear about things that have happened just to kind of, you know, compartmentalize them however they do. And nobody has to listen to true crime podcasts, Correct. you know, if you're offended or disturbed by the stories that you hear, that's understandable. These are disturbing stories, but you don't, we're not forcing you to be here. We, we do appreciate you being here, but you don't have to be if you're bothered by it. Yeah. I mean, if you can just download it every week and play it somewhere, you don't have to listen to it. Just play We'd it. like it if you listen to we us. Would, yeah, actually we would. Um, the only thing I have a problem with is if I'm doing the research too close to bed. I don't know. It must be all the information and the disturbing images must come to bed with me. And then I notice I sleep poorly on those nights. You can just give me a little nudge and I'll uh, take care of something. No, yeah. you're upstairs playing your, uh, what is it, Xbox? What the hell are you playing? PlayStation. PlayStation, yeah, please. Who knows what you're into these days? Lord knows what you do up there when you go play those video games. <laughs> I'm playing the loft upstairs. Uh, Breaker Breaker 1-9, fellas. Uh, you got to help me out over here. I got a tank coming my way. You got a tango. <laughs> got a tango <laughs> Charlie Tango Foxtrot. Tango on my six. Who knows? It's... I'm just downstairs watching my Hallmark movies. I'm solving real world problems problems okay? i don't know about that mike probably not but it's fun it's fun hearing all the explosions and such and so what's been going on with you this week other than your tanks and explosions uh, looking forward to going to chicago with yes. my wife that's you we are we're going to chicago and we're recording this early mm-hmm. so we only just talked to each other a few days ago on the podcast and yeah here we are again well i try to only talk to you during the podcast yeah that's the only time we interact in life is during the podcast otherwise it's silence radio silence through the house which has been really nice i'll (laughs) tell you that it's been really nice but uh no we're going to chicago to see a friend for his 50th birthday it was supposed to be a surprise but uh now the you know his wife let the cat out of the bag and he knows we're coming so cats trotting around town yeah we can talk about it openly here so we're heading there early early thursday morning and spending four nights with mike's parents at their house and Mm -hmm. it'll be a good time it will i'm looking forward to it chilly weather that's for sure yeah feel a little bit of christmas not like we do down here in tampa yeah exactly i think today was 80 degrees in tampa which is nice it Uh, was actually beautiful i'll take it yeah me too yeah how about what's going on with you uh just work i've actually today was my last day of work for the next week so i am pumped wow that's awesome i didn't even think about that exactly because you always have wednesdays off just to kind of catch up and you know you do um, four day work weeks basically Mm -hmm. so um wow that's that's pretty awesome yeah. I'd be in a really good mood if I were you. Yeah, I'm a little worn down. It's been a rough couple of days at work, but here we are. Oh. And uh, Tis the season. Also, it's December, so you find yourself like trying to get yourself in a tizzy about something. Not always, me. You? No, not you, me. You, I you try not to. You at the kitchen table saying, oh, I just don't know about all these things going on in my mind right now. <laughs> I said, there's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah. And then there was a meme or something that said, like, the holidays are your time to be your where your fancy anxiety or something like that. <laughs> it's true. That's true. Because, um, well, you know, with COVID, there's not as many get togethers, I guess. Um, especially at our age, like, we don't get together with friends much. For, well, we all have things going on. You yeah. know, our kids are in activities and sports and we're working and it's just not time. And then Sunday comes around. It's like, I want to sit on my couch in my pajama pants, not host people and cook food and clean. Right. Just, I just don't want to do it. Can't blame you. 
Yeah. We like our family. We like being together. We like our family. We like our friends. But, you know, you got to try to do the best we can. Yeah. You come first. So are you ready to hear my tale today? I think so. I'm going to start writing my little notes right over here. Gather around the fire. Mm -hmm. Get comfy. Absolutely. I'm comfy. So this actually, um, I probably should have done this a couple weeks ago because... Oh, before you talk, I'd like to point out that this is like unscripted. Like every every episode is unscripted as far as me and you. Like I have no idea what's coming up here. And no. I just kind of, you know, it's live reactions. So it's not like I have little points like, okay, you got to say this here. Yeah, no, I'm be. too lazy to be scripted, right. first of all. And then two, it doesn't sound very genuine to me. Right. So You can sense it on podcasts that are scripted. Yeah, which is fine. You know, everybody's yeah, got a everybody thing. does their own thing. I'm not judging. It's a show. It's an entertainment thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and um, you obviously have your story in front of you. But, I do. Yeah. But so, you don't know it. And we don't know what we're going to say to each other. Lord only knows what can come out of our mouths. Who knows? So, um, as I was trying to say before you so rudely interrupted me. True. Um, I probably should have talked about this a couple weeks ago because it was pretty much right at the anniversary at Thanksgiving time. But that's neither here nor there. This happened 52 years ago. Nine days ago was okay. the 52nd anniversary of this. Got it. So more than five decades have passed or five decades have passed since the murder of 22 year old Penn State graduate student Betsy Ardsma. So this is Betsy's story. Okay. And um, sadly, this is an unsolved murder. So uh, I'll put that out there right away. It. I know they're unsatisfying, but it, this is just kind of a crazy case. Well, you know, what's nice. Um, if you enough people hear it and the right person hears it, maybe it sparks something. Exactly. And that's just the thing. And I'll talk about that at the end. You know, this is not a closed case. You know, they're still looking for this person. Right. So um, it's kind of become a campus urban legend on Penn State University or maybe not heard of at all because 52 years have passed. So some people say where this took place on campus, you know, there's like sort of like spooky, ghosty vibes happening. But um, I was watching a video where there was a girl who was just like a Penn State lover. She'd been been there. She went to school there. She worked in the library in the section where this happened, and she had never even heard about this case. Yeah, I guess it depends who you talk to and who's into what. Exactly. So, you know, I think that's what people are fear of, though, is that this case is just fading, fading and fading and getting out of everybody's minds. Everything will be forgotten about eventually. Yeah. yeah. So I think... You know, the people who are trying to solve this case want to keep it going so that it could be solved and not forgotten. Well, the problem is odds are the people, you know, whoever did it is probably dead or very close to it. Well, no, because they were teenage. They're like like our parents age. I would imagine they're somewhere around 70 years old right now. Yeah. Um, So uh, Elizabeth Ruth Ardsma. I'm sorry. I don't know if I stutter that. Elizabeth Ruth Ardsma, Mm -hmm. also known as Betsy. Um, she was born on July 11th, 1947 in Holland, Michigan. She was the second of four children, and her parents were Esther and Richard Ardsma. Betsy was raised in a middle-class religious and conservative household. Her father was a sales tax auditor for the Michigan State Treasurer, and her mother was a housewife. Okay. So um, during her childhood, Betsy liked art and poetry as she grew older, um, she started to develop liberal ideas and showed concerns for the underprivileged. She was, Uh-oh. you know, outspoken and people who didn't have a big voice. Can't have that. Just got to think about money. That's all you got to think yeah. about is money, money, money all the time. Yeah, mine, right. mine, mine. I don't no. think so. So um, she attended Holland High School. She was a very good student, did very well. Um, when she was graduating high school, she graduated fifth in her class with honors. Very Impressive. bright girl. Yeah, exactly. I think well, I was Penn State's like, a good school. That makes sense. If you I, make it, I, don't, I wouldn't have gotten into Penn State. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't have gotten in. I don't know how hard it is, but I think out of 640, I was like, I was more than half up in the rank, but certainly not fifth in my <laughs> yeah, class. When you're kind of thinking you're talking in the middle somewhere, it's not, <laughs> yeah. the, it's not the top. I'm just your middle of the line student. Me but too. Me not too. Betsy. She was very smart. Um, In the fall of 1965, she enrolled at Hope College. She was interested in English, art, and also biology. So she kind of went towards the arts and writing, but she was also interested in potentially becoming a physician. You know, that's what I tell the kids. Like, if you're into some kind of an art, it's great. You know, absolutely pursue that. But you also have to make some money while you're pursuing that art. Right. It's it's really, really hard to make money in art. And, you know, you got to be very lucky or something, you know, have a break or something. But... Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week. 
bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. You know, what it comes down to to is we we have to pay the bills. Right. As we're adults, you have to put food on the table and have a roof over your head. And I wish sometimes that somebody would have said that to me. Like, you know, it's important to do what you're interested in but money is also important too because a lot of it when we were younger it's like follow your dreams and what really speaks to you and stuff and yeah yeah, i never listen to any of that i just want to make money and you know i work in a hospital so i could be working side by side with like a pharmacist who might make twice as much as i do you also could go back to school and do whatever you'd like i don't want to do that i oftentimes i hear you say you know i'd love to be rich and i said well what are you doing to get make that dream happen and you say huh nothing i'm not i'm just going to work every day and being a registered or dietitian it's fun to talk about <laughs> exactly it is fun to imagine what it would be like to be rich sure um so you know she wasn't exactly sure at this point what she wanted to do so she's enrolled in hope college um her college roommate described betsy as an intelligent and fascinating individual who showed feminist traits she was five foot eight she had long brown hair and definitely attracted the boys But, you know, she herself was more focused on her schoolwork and really didn't care to be distracted by, you know, other boys. Mm -hmm. So she kept on the straight and narrow, focused on her schoolwork and didn't really get sidetracked at this point by other males. Mm -hmm. Um, So two years later, in the fall of 1967, Betsy transferred to the University of Michigan to study art and English. She shared an apartment with three other women And then in her senior year, she began dating a medical student named David Wright, and he became basically her first serious boyfriend that she'd ever had. Um, Wright would later describe Betsy as a very brilliant person, extremely smart with a good sense of humor, just a wonderful person. Can you imagine that? Somebody describing you as like very brilliant and smart and you know witty and all that stuff like, yeah i mean those are all great characteristics yeah nice. Br- so she must have been very brilliant i mean that's some that's it's heavy it's a especially a, a medical big. student who must be smart himself yeah so obviously she was a very smart girl mm-hmm. um in the summer of 1969 betsy graduated with honors her drive to attend medical school had kind of dwindled and her love of reading literature and poetry started to grow. That's the problem. And it'll suck you right in. And you know, you got to love it. it. I have nothing against the arts whatsoever. It's just really hard. You know, you can't walk into a business and be like, yeah, I just want to read and you know research and stuff. It's, right. I think tough. Betsy had a good head on her shoulders yeah, though. For sure. Um, and really to be a physician, you have to want to do that. Because oh, absolutely. It is a huge dedication. You are spending years and years of your life completely married to your job and your school. I mean, what is it, like 10 years of schooling before you can even do anything? Well, what is it, four years of undergraduate, two years of medical school, I think. I don't know. know. And then residency is multiple years long. That's what I was thinking about, four years there. You know, you want to go into a specialty, that's many more years. So it is a huge dedication. Right. So at least she's realizing that, you know, my passion's just not there. Right. So after she graduated, she had hoped to join the Peace Corps and travel to Africa. But David kind of had other ideas. He had expressed to her that he didn't think if she did leave the country and was gone for long periods of time that their relationship would survive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, not sure what to do. That's fair. You know, if he doesn't want to go to Africa and stuff, and it's like, I got to have somebody here, you know, to talk to. Well, you know, he's focusing on medical school. He's got his hands full. And at that young of an age, I think at that point, what are you probably about 21 years old when you're graduating? Usually, yeah. You're young and you're experiencing maybe different people and finding the right person. I I do get that because I remember when you and I were in college together, Mike and I, um, we ended up going to the same university. Didn't necessarily plan that. It just kind of worked out. We started dating at 16. Yeah. So we were together for years before we even went to college. And I remember you voicing interest in a fraternity. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. That's just not me. I'm just not that party girl, obnoxious, 
running through the campus with my shirt off screaming drunk. I wanted the whole college experience. I wanted the whole fraternity and rushing and all that stuff and all, all that. I wanted, I wanted everything. Yeah, and I had just voiced to you one day we were playing tennis and I said, I just don't know if you joined a fraternity if that would just kind of put a wedge between us because that is not my scene. Because then you get introduced to other things like you know, a lot of gals and stuff and I was in good shape then and you know and just drunkenness and But you decisions. decided not to rush right. and join a fraternity and here we are 20 years later married. It worked out. So yeah, far so good. It all worked out. So I don't judge David for you know voicing that. I don't think he said to Betsy, you cannot go. No, he's just saying, I don't think this is going to work if you do go. Yeah. You're more than free to go. Just, I, I, don't, I need somebody here. I don't know me. that we're going to stay together by the time you come home. Right. So because of this, Betsy chose to stay and enroll at Penn State um, in order to be close to David. She's, she began at Penn State um, early October of 1969. She lived on campus in Atherton Hall, where she shared a dorm room with Sharon Brandt. Sharon would later say that Betsy spent much of her free time studying and also sharing her time traveling over to Penn State Hershey, where David was attending medical school. So she's doing like what, graduate graduate work? Here? Yes, okay. she's got her um, undergrad. Now she's in graduate school and David is two hours away at Penn State Hershey. And she would go on the weekends over there to his campus to see him. Mm -hmm. um, she rarely joined on extracurricular activities, just really putting her nose to the grindstone and focusing on her schoolwork. Sounds like she did that a lot. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, as she had graduated from the University of Michigan with her undergraduate, that's in Ann Arbor, I guess. I'm not that familiar. Yes, with it is. I've area. been there. You were there. So that's why I'm looking at you. Mm -hmm. I, I, You weren't there at school. You went for a football camp. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Okay. I'm Big just deal. saying like if anyone's picturing that you were like walking along the university. All I said was Michigan. I've been there. Okay. <laughs> Easy. I'm just setting the picture, Mike. I met, I met Coach Lloyd Carr, shook his hand and everything. He was a football I, coach. I don't know who that is. Yeah, so you, it's, you. you're not impressing me here. Okay. Um, so I guess there was a sense of relief as she left the campus of Ann Arbor because um, I am not very familiar with this person, but the co-ed killer had been on campus at that time. Oh, and she was not at the same that? university, but at Eastern Michigan University during this time frame. Huh. He ended up being 22 year old John Norman Collins, who was on a killing spree starting in 1967 and then resuming in 1969 when Betsy was at you know the university of michigan so i guess she felt you know kind of a sense of relief leaving that campus like oh, okay maybe i'm going to be safer and i guess her former brother-in-law had even made the comment thank god she's going to a place where it's safe sure so um we're heading into thanksgiving break of 1969 betsy was feeling stressed out she had a big english assignment coming up i guess it was a paper that was due so she went um and celebrated thanksgiving with david and his uh, roommates and their girlfriends on the Hershey campus. I guess they kind of sat down to an early Thanksgiving dinner, and she voiced that she was really eager to get back to campus just so she could start focusing on this paper and just get it off of her worry list. Sounds like you. Yeah, well, you know how it is. You're on Thanksgiving break. You're back that Monday. She probably just wanted to get a solid jump on it yeah. before Monday came around. Sure. So David totally understood and respected that. He drove her to the bus station and she got back on the bus to head to campus. And sadly, this was the last time David would see Betsy. Uh -huh. So um, at this point, uh, David and Betsy had been dating for about a year. The two had talked about getting married um, and even thought about maybe being engaged by Christmas time just wow. a month later. Mm -hmm. um, Betsy at this point had been at Penn State for only eight weeks. Wow. So her and Sharon went back that Thursday night of Thanksgiving. They kind of just relaxed, played some cards, and then went to bed. Betsy started her morning on Friday, November 28th. Um, kind of getting herself together on at her own dorm room, doing whatever work she can do on her paper with the resources she had there. It was a really chilly morning that day. Um, and her and her roommate, Sharon, decided to head out. Betsy was on her way to the library, and her and Sharon had parted ways at this point, but they had planned to meet up later in the afternoon to watch Easy Rider or take the money and run at a movie theater. Okay. Um, at approximately 4 p.m., Betsy spoke to her professor, Nicholas Tchaikovsky, about her assignment and what references she would need in order to complete it. Mm -hmm. So from there, she then made her way to Penn State's, one of uh, the two libraries on campus. When I was first looking into it, I thought it was the, called the Pat 
Patty Library. Yeah. <laughs> it's P-A-T-E-E, but uh, apparently it's called uh, Putty. 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 Huh. I was, no, Petit. Petit. Oh, Petit. Thank okay. you. I knew I wasn't saying that right. 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 So when you any, said it, I saw it in your face. Yeah, like, I'm like, mm. no, 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 that's not right. I don't want to any Penn State people to be sitting there being like, you idiot, it's Petit. Yeah, that's a tough one. I like that word, though, Petit. Yeah. So apparently it's one of the two libraries on campus. I was hoping Pate. <laughs> Pate. So she headed that way to do her research, but... um. First, she needed to talk to another professor who, I guess, had a library or had an office at the library. Before she did that, she bumped into two friends, Linda Marsa and Robert Steinberg. She talked to them for a few minutes, and then she headed to Harrison Maserol's office, who was another professor who had an office on level one of the library. From there, she headed to level three, where she put down her purse, her jacket, and a book inside a a Carol desk or a Corel desk. It's basically something that's assigned to you where you leave your things while you're studying there. Not Corel? It's C-A-R-R-E-L. Huh. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe this was a thing in the 1960s. I guess so. We didn't have it in the 1990s. Right. Um, It's assigned to her. She put her things down. She walked towards the card catalog to look up these references that her professor had told her she needed. Another thing we don't really need, card catalogs. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Oh, I was always such an idiot when I was looking for books. Well, it didn't make any sense. I just, it never did make sense to me. Other people seem to have their shit together, but not me. I don't know. Don't worry. Um, So she found her reference that she was looking for and walked down a flight of stairs to the level two core stacks at approximately 4.30 p.m., According to Derek Sherwood, who is the author of Who Killed Betsy, the stacks weren't meant to be accessed by students. Accessed? Accessed. <laughs> Boy, you're having trouble today. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I told imagine, you. I told imagine you. if English was your first language. <laughs> I'd Just be in imagine. trouble. Yeah. Um, they were very, very narrow, cramped, and not meant for more than one person per aisle because they, they were so tight. Who's supposed to get them? Probably staff. Well, at this point in time, it was open to the students. Because there's less people there because of Thanksgiving, probably? Um, No, I think really at just this period of time in mind, that's the way it was. Currently, um, you know, people don't go down there. Students would give their reference call numbers to a library employee. Obviously, now it's different. We have the internet. You know, I don't know how much this is being utilized. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in future years, a library um, staff member would go and retrieve the book. But at this point in time, students were going and doing those things. Back in 1969, this wasn't the case. Students were allowed to move freely and collect their own references. Mm-hmm. The last potential sighting of Betsy was in the level two course stacks minutes after 430, where an assistant supervisor named Dean Brungart noticed a girl in a red dress standing by herself in an aisle with two young men talking between themselves in a nearby um, space closer to the west end of the core. Um, Also sitting in the stacks were students Joao Uafinda, and a short distance from him was Marilee Early. I think this was a pretty quiet area. There weren't a lot of people. It's also Thanksgiving break, and the campus is drastically reduced in number of students. I'm just picturing rows and rows of these stacks and, you know, very cold looking place that's just kind of just books and references and everything whatever papers you need that to find yeah that's where these are sitting i saw exactly where this happened um they said too that the lighting was just horrific yeah i would i'd picture that too extremely dimly lit basically um but she wasn't by herself you know these other students were nearby um, like I said, Marilee Erdley um, and Joao Uafinda, and I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, it's just a different looking name. Um, they were working on their assignments just outside the entrance to the core stacks, only feet away from where Betsy was standing. Hmm. Richard Allen, who was an aerospace historian, was in the stacks that evening using the copy machine as he waited for his son. Allen said that he had overheard a conversation between a male and female in the area where Betsy stood. He couldn't hear exactly what the two were saying to each other, but nothing seemed unusual. It didn't seem like they were arguing. Nothing he noticed at all out of the ordinary. Yeah, you'd be able to pick up some kind of anger or something. Exactly. Um, Moments later, Alan heard a metallic crashing noise not far from where he stood. Out of curiosity, he started to move in that direction. And at the same time, he saw a young man looking like a student run barreling past him, nearly running him over. Wow. 
Um, the crashing sound caught the attention of Euphinda and Erdley, who saw the same man that Alan saw rushing toward them. Erdley stood up as the man got closer, and the man said, that girl needs help, as he pointed in the direction where the sound came. The man led her towards the sound, though he quickly left. Um, then Erdley saw the body of Betsy Ardsma laying between the dimly lit aisles of row 50 and 51. Euphinda watched the man leaving the library and discreetly followed him upstairs and saw him run out of the library. He attempted to chase him, but the guy ended up just getting away and disappearing. Losing him. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, so the man was last seen running in the direction of the recreation hall, Erdley described him as wearing khaki washable slacks, a tie, and a sports jacket. It's funny how back in like the 1960s, people were so much more formal. Yeah. You know, like Betsy herself was wearing a white turtleneck and a red dress over it. Right. And this guy's wearing khakis and a tie. You know, we'd go looking like homeless people to the library. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sweatpants. Exactly. And 30 hat. years later, you know, in, in the 1990s. Yeah. Because um, we actually were on campus 30 years after this had happened. Not not at Penn State, obviously, but just how the times have changed. Right. Um, so he was well-groomed. He had well-groomed brown hair. He was approximately six feet tall and weighed 185 pounds and may or may not have been wearing glasses. I think it all just happened so freaking fast yeah. that, you know, the details were hazy. Depends who you ask and whatever. Yeah. A student library employee also witnessed a man rushing out of the library. The police tried to get this man to come forward. Obviously, he didn't because here we sit and this is unsolved. Yeah. That's, so, uh, and it's not like now where there's cameras for everything. Like that guy would be found on a camera with right. a very high definition film. Exactly. So between 4.45 and 4.55 p.m., Betsy had been stabbed a single time. Stabbed. stabbed. See, what I was expecting was something fell on her or something. Nope. Wow. Okay. Like I pictured like some books or whatever. Something fell. Whatever. I pictured some things on top of her. But No. Um, so she hell? was stabbed a single time through the left breast with a knife. Jesus Christ, man. Like why? Crazy. It, nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody freaking knows. The wound severed her pulmonary artery and pierced the right ventricle of her heart. She slumped to the ground near the end of the aisle, pulling several books off the adjacent shelves as she fell onto her back. So hence the noise that they heard this metallic crashing sound. That was the knife. It was her body pulling books off the shelf. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, So Erdley had checked Betsy's body for a pulse and more people began to gather around Betsy, including the librarian who attempted first aid and mouth to mouth. The campus hospital had been called at 5.01 p.m. and responders had initially been told that a girl had fainted. That's what it was all believed to have happened. So they weren't necessarily super in a hurry. um, Nothing was suspected at this point. Two student paramedics had been sent to the scene and arrived only minutes later. Betsy was placed on a gurney and taken to the health center as the paramedics continued to perform CPR on her. Trooper Mike Simmers had been working undercover on campus when he received the call. He remembers that it was a call he had never experienced. He was told that there was a medical emergency and a student was believed to have fainted or possibly had a seizure. Hmm. So um, he had no idea at this point what he was dealing with. He had no idea that this was a murder. He recalls following campus security into a library into the dimly lit stacks where he saw several books scattered around the floor. The floor was stained with a small amount of an unknown liquid, but there was no body to be found as Betsy had already been taken away. Right. So she's at the hospital. He finds the situation very odd. The area is being cleaned up. People are just walking around. Like, he's walking in and it looks like nothing happened. But all he's responding to is somebody fainted. Somebody fainted. So why would it be so odd? Because just, of the liquid? I don't know. The blood? He, something just seemed off about it. And his experience says that something was off. Yeah, there's this liquid on the floor. This girl fell, pulled books down, and now he's walking in and, like, nothing's happened. People are just walking about... And somebody's tending to the mess and cleaning up. Sure. So by the time Simmers arrived to the hospital, he had found out that 
not only had Betsy died, but that her death was ruled a homicide. Oh, man. Yeah. So, because, yeah, typically in these situations, you want to keep the... Bu- Although, if she can be saved, obviously, you want to get her into the... You want to preserve the, the scene yeah, of so where this happened exactly. for, you know, in order to get evidence. Investigation purposes. Mm-hmm. So, Simmers knew at this point that he is in over his head. So, he needed to call in backup. So, he immediately called the state police, who were located about eight miles from campus. They all met at the library, which is now considered a crime scene. Right. So, Betsy had been wearing a white turtleneck sweater, um, and the wound produced only a very small amount of visible blood. She had a thick sleeveless dress over the turtleneck. So it almost looked like a kind of like a smock type of dress. Uh-huh. And it was, you know, thick. It was red. Um, so I think that kind of, you know, concealed concealed what, what had actually happened. Yeah. Um, she had also urinated as she fell to the ground. And that can happen during a seizure. So that's why they're like, okay, she fell there. She urinated. This looks like she either fainted or had a seizure. Um, and wasn't a knife sticking in her? No. Okay. Oh, they t- stabbed her and went. left. Oh. They fled. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is all being looked at as some non-critical ailment that just happened to a poor student that was doing research in the oh, library. Man. So little blood was left at the scene as Betsy had bled internally into her lungs. Oh, no. Yeah, not externally. So shortly after arriving at the health center, a more senior medical worker noticed that there was some blood seeping through her clothing, and the paramedics were told to immediately stop CPR, because I guess that's just encouraging her to bleed out, I guess. It's almost like absorbing it, like making her breathe it in more. Yeah, I don't know. So her blood-soaked shirt and bra were cut from her body to reveal a single stab wound that was one inch wide and three inches deep. 22-year-old Betsy had been pronounced dead at 5.19 p.m. Wow. Crazy. Like, just an hour or so before, her and Sharon are having a conversation. Yep, we're going to meet at the cinema. We'll figure out what movie we want to see when we get there. You're going to the effing library to do some research. And this girl never went out or anything. No. So it's not like a jealous boyfriend or, you know, anything like that. She's on the straight and narrow, and somebody just walks up to her and stabs her to death. Nuts. So um, the autopsy was done by Dr. Thomas McNanny at Belafonte Hospital at 11 p.m. that same night, November 28th, and concluded at 4 a.m. the next morning. The cause of death was a single stab wound that had penetrated Betsy's breastbone, piercing her heart and severing her pulmonary artery, causing her to extensively hemorrhage into her chest cavity. Death occurred likely within five minutes of the stabbing. Wow. I mean, just bled out. The perfectly imperfect stab. Right. Or, you know, was it planned that way? You know, who knows? I mean, it's really hard to get somebody that's alive to stab in a perfect position. Oh, and eh, also to know exactly where. Exactly where. Yep. Betsy had been basically drowning in her own blood, unable to call out for any help. There were signs of petechial hemorrhaging um, on her chest, which is bruising and abrasions. The abrasions could have come from when she fell forward or backwards at the time, you know, she was stabbed. But the bruising around the knife wound just showed that it was plunged in very hard. Mm. Um and deep into her chest. So not like some kind of accident kind of thing. Like this is definitely targeted and this is somebody that wanted to stab her and kill yep. her. Yep. The um doctor who did the autopsy believed that Betsy's murderer had aimed for her heart as he faced her and that he was right-handed and would have required a significant amount of strength to penetrate that deep into her chest. And the breastbone. Yeah, yeah. like Pulp Fiction. You know, like uh, that's the first thing I thought of when they stabbed the Ugh. needle into past the breastbone because you got to stab that adrenaline into the heart directly. Right. So he's like, you got to stab through the breastbone Ugh. and... That's like you know a significant amount of force, and they said the 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 stab was three inches deep. So from some of our other, uh, like Robert Wan, I think that was the story where they said it was a certain size, you know. So that obviously the knife could only been. I mean, I'm I'm holding my fingers up here, so maybe like a pocket knife. Kind well, of somebody was saying it was it could have been like a hunting knife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Either way. I don't know, and I remember when you did the Robert Wan story, I kept saying, "Where's the blood? How is he not soaked?" Right. Well, apparently they just bleed internally. Mm-hmm. I I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know either. Um, there were no signs. I guess or, it depends if you hit like an artery that's going to squirt, you know, right? Or this is something, yeah, you know, like it probably punctured her lung, I guess, or it severed her pulmonary artery. Okay, so I don't know. Yeah. 
Um, it's been a while since I've taken anatomy and physiology, so sorry I can't give more. I'm not a physician. That's your fault. Um, There were no defensive wounds on Betsy and nothing to suggest that there was any kind of struggle of any kind, and it looked like the killer knew exactly where to plunge the knife. You know, this girl had no idea what was coming for her, so there were no defensive wounds. She didn't know what the hell was happening. They go from a conversation to being stabbed in the heart. Or maybe not a conversation at all. You know, who knows? Yeah. So then, of course, the investigation begins, and Penn State Police assigned about 35 officers to investigate Betsy's murder. Hundreds of students were interviewed in the weeks after her death, and the campus was unsuccessfully scoured to find the murder weapon. Man. Yep, no sign of any murder weapon. A $25,000 reward was offered for any information of any kind. Investigators found that up to 400 individuals would normally enter and exit the library between 4.30 and 5 p.m. on a typical Friday. But this being Thanksgiving break, this wasn't the case. And that evening, it was likely that only about 90 had done so. I don't know how they have a count because I didn't. I never had to sign in and out of the library, but... Yeah, maybe there's maybe it's just an approximation. Yeah, I'm not sure. So anyway, the point is, it was drastically, drastically quieter than what would be typical. Um, And no one that was interviewed was considered to be a suspect. Two composite drawings had been done of the man that Euphinda and Erdley had seen running. Well, that's good that so many people saw him. So, well, I think it ended up being somewhere around three people Uh is really what it came down to. Well, then they can all give their intake and be like, yeah, I think that looks right. Exactly. So one was with the help of Euphinda and the library desk clerk and one with Erdley. Only Erdley's drawing had ever been released to the public. Hmm. Um, By the time Simmers was back at the library to meet the state police he found that nothing was left intact like i said janitors had been instructed to mop up the urine from the tile floor and pick up the fallen books and replace them to the shelves because they thought she just fainted and got cleaned up and not embarrassed the lady yeah. yeah so any possible evidence that may have been there had been compromised mm. They found a spray of tiny droplets of blood that was found on a stairwell leading into the level three core stacks. And law enforcement said it looked like someone was flicking their hands, Mm. possibly after wiping the blood off of a knife. Ah. So it was just like tiny, like little picture flicking your fingers down. Like if your hands are wet. And I guess it's the 50s and they don't have DNA testing. It's 69. So 69, okay. Exactly. So they matched Betsy's blood type and indicated that the murderer had fled the library through this route. But like you just said, DNA technology wasn't available at the time. Damn. So no one was asked to stick around for questioning. Um, when the witnesses were eventually questioned, most just recalled hearing the books falling. Police had a couple of people who could have been the suspect, though there really was never enough evidence to make an arrest. Okay. Um, state police thought uh, or brought in experts who used UV black lights to detect bodily fluids and aisle 51, where Betsy had been murdered, basically lit up like a Christmas tree. Okay. Um, it was covered in semen. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> sorry to laugh. Uh, I mean, story, it's just kind of was, like, in, what? In my head, I was like, well, this is a college campus. There's probably other things on the wall, I would guess. I don't know. I'm so innocent. Like, I, I, it would never cross my mind to, like, if I was a man, to go to the library and just jack off in the between aisle 50 and 51 shoot all uh, over the books call me a square that's just me <laughs> you've never lived until you've i've never lived until i ejaculated in the library level two at penn state university um so it was basically covered in semen though most i don't know why i'm whispering <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um most of the samples appeared to be days old if not older one investigator commented that semen was practically Everywhere is how he quoted it. (laughs) They found more than two dozen porno magazines stashed between the books and the aisles that Betsy had been murdered. It was suspected that the location basically served as like a little secret rendezvous spot for couples, even singles, I guess, who Ah. like to masturbate in public. Right. You know, I don't know. I don't judge. It's just not me. Um, So near the aisle where Betsy had been located, or had been murdered, I should say, there was a desk with a chair that had been pulled out, you know, like somebody just got up and pushed it back. Mm -hmm. On the desk was a partially consumed can of soda and a small stack of heterosexual and homosexual porno magazines that were dated as recently as October slash November, which was at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Fingerprints had been taken from the can, but matched no sources in the database. 
All fingerprints on the magazines were basically smudged and unusable. So they got it from the can. Nothing matched. Mm -hmm. Um, It was suspected that Betsy may have known her assailant. The library aisles, like I had mentioned before, were extremely narrow. So if there were two people in the aisle, they could not pass each other. The one person basically had to squeeze themselves sideways in order to get past the other. Wow. It was like an awkward situation. Because they want to have so many... Yeah, references there. Mm -hmm. That's all the papers. Sure. They want to pack it in. Uh Um, The other thing was, is that it was only a one way in. The aisles had been pushed to the wall. So where Betsy stood, she was basically trapped. Behind her was a wall. So she's in this teeny tiny narrow aisle looking for her reference. And obviously the person came towards her because there's only one way into the aisle. They knew they had her there. Yeah, exactly. So the killer either appeared to Betsy as another student doing research or someone that she knew. Betsy had also made no attempt to scream or flee. Of course, we found that the blood that had seeped into her lungs would have prevented her from falling out. She couldn't. Much research was done to see if Betsy had been stalked. That day, Betsy was supposed to be with her boyfriend. She wasn't even supposed to be there. Back in that day, there were no cell phones. There was no social media. That decision she made on Thanksgiving evening was just quick and unplanned. So nobody knew she was going to be back on campus and back at the library. Obviously, they may have seen her that morning milling about. I don't know what she did that day. If she went down to the cafeteria and got herself breakfast and maybe we're like, oh, Betsy is back. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know, um, but it was all unplanned, and it's not like somebody would have had ample time to plan this because it was all spur of the moment. Yeah. Um, David had been quickly ruled out as a suspect. Obviously, it's the first person you go to. Of course, you yeah. keep it close, and he was back at Hershey just as he was, and there was no reason to believe that he you know, had done anything. Uh-huh. Um, Betsy had voiced concerns that she was going to end up being a physician's wife, but diary entries didn't indicate that they were having any issues in the relationship. They also indicated no other suitors or issues with other men in the eight weeks that she'd been on campus. Simmers had said that everyone either wanted to be Betsy's friends or to date her, but she was so focused on schooling that she didn't entertain the ideas of boys that had crushes on her. And also she's with David. Yeah. She's kind of like you where it's like, no, I'm taken. Well, there's no, there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, well I'm with this person. Yeah. Like that's totally, Oh, you have a crush on me. Okay. Well, that's nice. If I wasn't dating somebody, then maybe we could talk, but I am. Yeah. It's like when we were in New York city and these guys had bought us drinks at this bar and I'm like, please don't waste your money on us. I'm, I'm married and I'm not, going home with you so please go to those other single girls and find them you're not getting anything here no nothing's happening here um so there were other ideas that perhaps betsy had happened to stumble upon a situation with an exhibitionist obviously we saw the semen all over the place maybe she walked in guys jerking it jerking it and but that's just they all kind of had been dismissed well because she would walk up and be like oh and then just kind of turn around right probably. or perhaps there was a homer home homosexual encounter i like how they say that like why not just a heterosexual encounter but i don't know maybe two men overtook her or something maybe you know? um or somebody that propositioned her like hey you're in the spot where people like to come and make out and jizz all over books so what you want let's do this and you'd think at that point she'd be like no help so it was probably mm-hmm. Again, somebody she knew. Something, and it just happened so quick. Yeah. So there were other possibilities that perhaps she came upon a drug deal or had unsettled drug debt. It's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> Betsy did smoke cigarettes, but she rarely drank alcohol and was certainly never known to be a user of drugs. So yeah. again, quickly ruled out. Pretty straight and narrow yeah, type, type exactly. There were countless rumors even that it was potentially Ted Bundy. That did this. Well, yeah, because it's a college campus and people are going to start talking. Well, apparently he had been at Temple University around the time of the incident. I don't know how far of a distance it is, but clearly it's in the area. That was also quickly ruled out. It didn't show any of the characteristics of his murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically the case turned cold and the case remains unsolved. Records related to the murder are sealed under the state's Open Record Act, but Pennsylvania State Police continue to seek information. So there's been a couple of authors that have written about this case. They both believe that, you know, they know who the murderer is. Really? 
and they believe that it was Richard slash Rick Hafner. So he goes by Rick in a lot of the things that I read. So at the time of Betsy's murder, he was a 25-year-old doctoral geology student. He um, So the one of the authors specifically, his name is David DeCook. He feels that Rick is the clear killer, describing him as a charmer. He was handsome, well-dressed, with a pleasant speaking voice, but a monster, a molester of boys again and again throughout his life. Oh, he harbored a violent rage against women that could erupt without warning. DeCook was six years younger than Betsy at the time of the murder and remembers seeing the newspaper come out the next day about her death at Penn State. Mm. He didn't know her, but they both grew up in Holland, Michigan. They went to the same high school, had similar teachers. So he felt very crazy. connected to this case. Not Rick, not the oh, suspected guy, the, the author, author. Okay. David, David yeah. DeCook. He just felt very connected to this case. It's just such a shocking thing. I mean, this you know, studious girl just goes to the library and gets killed. He just like didn't settle well with him. So he ended up looking into it and writing a book about it. So he is convinced that Rick Hefner Hefner was the murderer. So he just recalls how beautiful Betsy was. This is David DeCook um, that I'm referring to. And just how the nature of her murder just was so shocking to him that he just wanted to really dedicate a lot of his time to researching. Mm -hmm. So um, he explains that he feels that Rick was the murderer because he had a crush on Betsy who just wanted to remain friends. Obviously, she's studying. She's got a boyfriend that she's considering getting engaged to um, and that perhaps she had rejected him. Rick claimed to be eating dinner at the Hub Student Union when he found out about the murder. But from what I had watched in a video that this was not a far distance. So a person could have easily run across campus and sat down to dinner and been like, yeah, I'm eating here. Right. You know, as a quick cover. Get your alibi. Exactly. Um, There was other... um, Like go around, you see a bunch of friends, be like, hey, hey, yeah, hey, just make sure you're seen there. Oh, the spaghetti tonight is really good, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Um, there was also um, a professor that had said, I, I don't know if this was left out to police or how this came to be, but only 45 minutes after Betsy had been pronounced dead, he rushed over to his college advisor, who was, I guess, somebody that he was close with, out of breath saying, have you seen the papers while referencing Beth- Betsy's murders? Clearly, the papers had not published anything about this at this point in time. Obviously not. It had just happened. Right. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. Um, And both the professor and his wife had the impression that he may have been involved in the incident that he was describing. Is he a complete moron? I mean, he's a yeah. He's exceptionally smart. No, he's geology. He was getting his doctorate in geology. I thought it was biology and geology. No, just geology. No, he was just geology. Oh, doctorate in geology. Yeah, doctorate. Okay, Mm -hmm. sorry. So he was said to have gone to extreme measures throughout his life to obtain platonic relationships with women in order to conceal his homosexuality. Mm. Um, He lived across the courtyard from Betsy at Atherton Hall. Rick was known for erratic behavior with periods of explosive anger and outbursts. During his time as an undergrad, Rick worked at the North Museum in Franklin and Marshall College. During his time there, these rock specimens would just start to vanish. And Rick spending tons of time in this position nearly every day yet he's not being able to account for where these rock specimens had gone <laughs> well, i don't to. know yeah, it's probably so, one of the students apparently he had sticky fingers too yeah. um and then similar to how the suspect had been described in betsy's murder rick frequently wore khakis a sport coat he kept his brown hair short and neat mm-hmm. um shortly Just like they said yep shortly washable before, khakis i'll remember that washable, washable khakis yeah. hey i like washable khakis because who the hell wants to iron <laughs> no nobody. not me if it's wrinkled, I ain't wearing it. And it's nice that you can wash them and not just you know, <laughs> wear them once and throw them away. Exactly. Shortly before Betsy's death, she had ended their friendship. I guess she had made reference that she felt like he was a creep. So who knows if this angered him? We, we will never know. Betsy, Wait, who ended the, his relationship? Betsy and Rick. They knew each other as acquaintances. Okay. And, the, and she, Betsy she ended, recently said, I don't want to talk to you She anymore? recently had ended their friendship. Oh, wow. Somebody had said she made reference to saying, what a creep. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Betsy's roommate, Sharon, had brought up Rick's name. She, I guess he recently had visited their apartment more than once in the weeks before her death. Well, the police are going to be like, okay, anybody, like, think of anybody that might have something against her, mm-hmm. that wants to get back to her, any kind of revenge, anything. And, and I'm like, sure well, the list was pretty darn short. Yeah. 
you know, she didn't seem like a scandalous girl that would create a lot of drama. No, but he would definitely come up as somebody that sure. she ended a relationship with. Right. Like, you would think a, it would be glaring. Yeah. Prime target. Um, so I want to hear about the police interviewing this guy. Yeah. Rick was questioned in early December of 1969 and admitted to their budding friendship and the fact that Betsy had ended it. He said again that he had been eating at the student union building on the evening of November 28th when he heard a rumor of a student being murdered at the library. He said um, that he didn't ever set foot in the library that evening and that he was doing his research at another building. The image made by Yofinda and the desk clerk that hadn't been given to the media does show a strong resemblance to Richard. Rick. Rick, yeah. Simmers, the um, police officer that was yep. undercover that night, he is now retired from the state police. He said that Rick was never named a suspect. Whoa. Yeah. That's insane. So later developments um, after the fact, you know, obviously Betsy was murdered November of 1969. In August of 1975, two boys that worked in Rick's family's rock shop had separately accused him of pedophilia. He went to trial, which resulted in a hung jury and successfully ensured expungement of his records um, for his arrest and trial in 1981. Rick was fined $500 and sentenced to only one month in county prison, but served only two weeks. Uh, Rick's temper came through on many future occasions. He was cited with disorderly conduct for causing disturbance in the lobby of a newspaper. Um, in 1992, he was arrested for interfering with the custody of a child after he took a 13-year-old boy to Virginia. It's like, what? That's nuts. Um, the boy's mother reported him missing, though the case was dropped after the mother said that Richard had taken the boy to Virginia on previous occasions. It's like, okay, but maybe this occasion I didn't give the clearance to do so. And who, what kind of parents given their 13-year-old okay to go with some... Some guy. This is the 70s. Oh, yeah. You know. Right. Um, actually, no. I don't know what year. What year was that? No, I'm sorry. That was 1992. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, in 1994, police responded to an incident at his home and charged him with aggravated assault, resisting arrest, assaulting an officer. In 1998, he was convicted of assaulting a Delaware woman after an argument in a liquor store parking lot. The woman had seen a dog in the shopping cart and thought that the dog was abandoned. So she, you know, got out of her car to investigate what's this dog doing. Oh, poor little dog. I want to see if it's okay. Uh, apparently it was Richard's dog. They argued. The woman went to leave and Richard struck the door of her car with a liquor bottle. <laughs> when she got out of her car to get his license plate number, he got out of his car, grabbed her by the neck and pulled her out of her car, Whoa. kicking and, and punching her, what? causing her jaw to dislocate and several of her teeth to become loose. Oh, my God. So this man is capable of violence. Yeah, horrible this things. This is a person in a liquor store parking lot. Jesus Christ. I always say, like, how can you get yourself worked up to the point that you're going to, like, put your hands on somebody, a woman, no less? Right, right. I mean, I get it, like, self-defense, you know, that's one thing, but, like, this woman was just trying to get away. She was trying to get his license plate and get back in her car. Yeah, that's nuts, man. This guy's screwed. I mean, all signs point to him, obviously. Mm -hmm. This is somebody closely connected with her and (laughs) had multiple things afterwards. Interest in her. Yeah. Um, neighbors heavily dislike Richard. His yard was in disarray, filled with broken down cars, metal drums, and tarps covering piles of rocks. Obviously, a messy yard doesn't make a murderer. No. Um, but when one particular neighbor complained to city officials, Richard um, broke his jaw. No, actually, he just got even by spreading his junk and garbage all across this person's porch. Nice. Um, another time, he pierced a neighbor's tire. Another time, his dog pooped in the neighbor's yard, and when he was called out on it, he picked up the the crap with his bare hands and threw it into the car window nice. of the neighbor. Yeah, so he's yeah. if he gets mad enough, there's no telling what he'll do. Yeah, he was basically described as a very scary and threatening person. And you also said that he didn't love, or you know, he kind of hated women, basically? He used women to conceal the fact that he was likely a homosexual. Yeah, but he also, some, there was something, I think, in there that you said, like, he, he had a violent something. I violent guess, outbursts and temper. But against women, specifically. So yeah. the, the thing was, you know, Betsy... Uh, she was a feminist, you know, and I'm uh-huh. sure they didn't really get along in those areas because he probably spoke down about women. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, actually, women are pretty good. We should have all these things. We actually need even more. And I'm sure, yeah, on the men- 
just a kind of a mental level. They probably didn't connect very well. Probably butt heads in yeah. that regard. Yeah. Um, and who knows? Maybe that was part of the reason why she ended their friendship. It's like one of those situations. She's focusing Toxic. on getting her um, graduate degree and she's got this guy who's probably making inappropriate comments or whatever and she's like i don't need this in my life like buddy you're gay just uh, come out and get out of the closet it's cool it's okay yeah Yeah. come on out we'll we'll accept you yeah um in 2009 richard's cousin had said that on one occasion in 1975 he overheard a conversation between richard and his mother she was angry about the molestation charges that had been filed against him basically upset that she was needing to cover for him again. (laughs) And it never rang out to his cousin because he didn't know anything about this whole case. So it's like, you know, and he was probably a child. He just overheard something and didn't really piece it together. Sure. But now like the dots were coming together as he's hearing about the actual case. What else did you have to cover for? So there was talk about how he had killed that girl. That was said between there was him talk? and his mother. That was actually said. His cousin overheard this in conversation. Whoa. She's like, basically, I covered for you one time, and now you're putting me through this again with this molestation charges. Yeah. And that... Um, You've done this before, and now you're putting me on the line again. The conversation ended with her saying, you might as well kill me, too. Mm. So, okay, so it wasn't necessarily you killed that girl. You might there well was talk about, quote, killed that girl. Oh, my God. Yeah. But this was in not until like 2009 was this even said. You would think that this guy that overheard this would... He was young, you said? He was young. It was his cousin. You know, he was a a kid himself when all this was happening. And then you wonder how much he actually remembers accurately. I don't know. He he says he does. Yeah. In 2002, Richard ended up dying. So he's not even with us any longer. I was going to say, now with all these podcasts and stuff, people got to be knocking down this guy's Mm -hmm. door. So he died in a Las Vegas hospital at age 58 after suffering a heart attack in the Mojave Desert while studying rocks. What a dickhead. Yep. So the I guess we'll never know. Without him, clearly. Um, Betsy had been laid to rest December 3rd, 1969. Her casket remained open and she was buried at the family plot of the Pilgrim Home Cemetery in her hometown of Holland. She held a single rose from her boyfriend, David. Mm. Um, the final letter that she had written to him arrived only one day after she was murdered. Oh, How hard is that? That sucks. We used to write each other letters all the time. Yeah, when we loved each other. <laughs> Back in the day when we cared for one another. When we were sweet. Now we only talk on the podcast, like we said. Yeah, and I send you explicit pictures through uh, Snapchat. <laughs> I'm like, Mike, I don't want to see your penis. <laughs> yeah, stop sending it. I'm at Please. Work. I'm at work. It is not appropriate right now. Right, right. Um, the fear is, you know, that Betsy will be forgotten, that her case will be forgotten. Um, many Penn State students, like I said, they're completely unaware that this murder ever even happened on their own campus. Um, and, you know, of course, people who had been part of the investigation have died or retired. Betsy's own family no longer speaks of the case. They, you know, want to move forward in their life and live the, the years that they have. Well, yeah. And then you have all these people that bring it back up and say, you know, did you ever think about this and whatever? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can't get especially this guy that died. I mean, I'm pretty it's a good chance that, that this it was guy did probably it. him. Yeah. I mean, I. I'd hate to say it, and if it wasn't, but... Well, he's dead already, so it doesn't really matter. Um, Either, the, Rick's not a good guy. So no, not at all. Who cares? He's, yeah. he's a piece of shit. Yeah. That's okay to say. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Betsy's death did help play a factor in forming the university police force at Penn State. Pennsylvania State Police Trooper Tyler J. Grube with criminal investigators told Oxygen.com that the case remains very active and open. Very active? How does a case or stay Or active very- and open. Okay. <laughs> um, so it is active, it is open. Yeah. And anyone with any information about Betsy Ardsma is asked to call the Pennsylvania State Police at 717-783-5599. Yeah. And wow. that is the story of Betsy Ardsma. And you know that you know anybody that might have information would probably be looking it up and then listening to podcasts like ours, you know, looking up Betsy's name, mm-hmm. trying to see who's talking about it. Yeah. Oh. So 52 years ago, right at this time. Very, yeah. very sad. And it's sad. Yeah. It's too bad. Poor I thing. just don't know what kind of crazies are out you there. Know, and had her whole future ahead of her, and who knows what she would have accomplished. Exactly. She obviously was extremely motivated, bright. She was described as brilliant. I'm sure she would have done many great things, and that was sadly taken away from her in the library yeah. while she was trying to get an assignment done. I can't even imagine what it could have been. 
you know like even this guy that had this relationship then it went sour it's like maybe he's like he propositioned her or something like but she would have screamed you know but you know if she would have saw david walking towards her she lived in the same like dorm as him yeah you know it wouldn't have been crazy to see him in the library basement or wherever they were probably try to get out of the aisle and but it was super tight yeah and he's like no you're not but then as soon as he says you're not going anywhere she'd probably scream right maybe he didn't say that yeah maybe Maybe he was literally just talking to her and saw her going to the aisle and mm -hmm. like um Wow, man, but it couldn't have been premeditated either because he didn't know that she was going to be there. Right, but, you know, he had a knife on him. And the other thing is that he drew attention to it. That girl needs help. Yeah, weird. Why did he do that? Why, you know, the, the, the thing that makes me so upset is that three people saw this person Could have and stopped he them. freaking got away and i don't blame them no they didn't not. know what was happening that one dude tried to follow it's just him. such a freaking shame like they all saw him and now we're talking about it and it's unsolved and, and just 52 one... years later he, he got away i'm sure they're all kicking themselves too well and again i don't blame them no of course not but it's just it's just so crazy that he got away well you know how you look back at something and be like if i just would have said this or mm-hmm. if i just would have done this it would have been different but you didn't, and how were you supposed to know? You well, you know, and you're in that. your own world. You, you've got your head in your book studying. You hear some commotion. You're like, what the hell is that? You know? Yeah. The guy runs away, and you're like, oh, I should go check it out. And everything happens so fast. Yeah. You know, that's just how it is. In hindsight's twenty twenty. You wish you would have grabbed him. You wish this or that or the other, but it didn't happen. And, I give credit to that one dude that followed him mm-hmm. as much as he could. Yep. Until he got lost. Yep. Yeah. So... Ugh. Gosh. Very unfortunate. It, unsolved cases just make me crazy because no justice is brought to the person and this crazy lunatic was left to run around in the world. Yeah. It's too bad. Yeah. It's just, yeah, you gotta gotta focus on what you have and, you know, forgive people for whatever and then that's the only way to move forward. Yeah. Unfortunately. So that's it for me. Well, great job. Um, Yeah. Well, if, if you know anything about it, go ahead and call those police. Yep. Hopefully someday it gets closed. I hope so. So until next time. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate you being here. Very much. Okay. Bye. Bye.